Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty Podcast. This is episode number 27. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast. Part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. On the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on-duty law enforcement. Giving you both angles of discussion, today I'm joined by my old friend Jeff Pierce. Jeff headed up uh, an agency's crisis intervention team, which some of, some of you, uh, if you're paying attention to the national media with uh, some of the things going on in law enforcement, you'll hear this buzzword, CIT, an abbreviation for crisis intervention team. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what it is and what it's not. But first, let's get into our sponsors. This episode's brought to you by Range Tech Bluetooth Shot Timers. Every serious shooter should have a shot timer. The new Range Tech Bluetooth Timer is the most affordable, high-tech, and feature-rich timer on the market. $25 less than any competing shot timer. The Range Tech Timer connects to your phone via Bluetooth. And it gives you the accuracy and power of a dedicated shot timer, along with the advantages of online storage, auto scoring, and much, much more. Learn more at rangetechtimer.com. Uh, Jacob from concealedcarry.com was kind enough to send me a range tech Bluetooth timer and I've been giving it quite the workout. I love it. Great feature rich timer, which is commanded and controlled by your phone. And it's so simple to use that even I can figure it out. Right. So rangetechtimer.com. Also newest sponsor, CCW safe, CCW safe is a legal service membership for concealed carriers and LEOs carrying under HR 218, they are the most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team. And I know everybody on that team, and I can tell you with 100% surety that they are the best in the industry, and they have given me the opportunity to give you 10% off of your legal service membership if you go to ccwsafe.com forward slash off duty 10 for 10% off of any one of their memberships. So Great dudes over there. Check them out. Check out the website. They've got some comparisons. Great people and uh, a great service. So EDC Belt Company, makers of the foundation belt, the most comfortable functional concealed carry belt on the market. Check them out at edcbeltco.com. EDC Belt Co. along with CCW Safe will be sponsoring the first concealedcarry.com Guardian Conference. September 17th through the 19th, 2021 in Oklahoma City. It will be the number one destination for defensive-minded shooters. Three days of live instruction from some of the best firearms trainers in the country, and I'm going to read them to you right now. Larry Vicker, Spencer Keepers, Riley Bowman, Matthew Little, a.k.a. Graybeard Actual, Brian Eastridge, me, Steve Moses, Chuck Haggard, Samuel Middlebrook, Brian McLaughlin from Mountain Man Medical, Hanny McMood from North Texas Tactical, Andrew Bronca, The Law of Self-Defense, and Todd Fossey. Jump in now. There is early bird pricing on the website. It'll be held at the Oklahoma City Gun Club in a really cool facility that's their uh, part of their cowboy action shooting facility. There's multiple shooting bays overhead cover shade all that good stuff uh you know if it rains we won't have to we won't have to be miserable we can shoot from inside the bays it's awesome it's a great facility i've shot uspsa there many 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 times over the years and uh for this conference breakfast and lunch every day of the event on-site snacks and water an official t-shirt you'll get a t-shirt and three days of networking with vendors like edc belt company and ccw safe instructors and other shooters so get your tickets at guardianconference.com i know it went a little long on guardian conference but it's coming up on us fast and i'm really looking forward to uh you know putting a face behind uh you know some of the names i see on the comments section of the off-duty on-duty podcast website i really appreciate your feedback so now that we've gotten our sponsor messages, let's bring in our guest. All right, Jeff Pierce, welcome to the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast. I wanted to get you on because like we talked in the pre-show, uh, you're the most recent program director or department head over the CIT program. Uh, 
And then you recently retired. When did, when did you leave officially call it? I, I actually, uh, I actually left the end of January with about 32 and a half years. Nice. Congratulations. And, uh, I hope Thank that you. someday I can experience this, this magical unicorn they call retirement. So, <laughs> Right. You will. I'm, I'm sure you will. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for, uh, I wanted to talk about this because I know this is a hot button uh, topic throughout the country. Interesting to me that even after being in law enforcement almost 20 years, um, I really didn't have a whole lot of background on the program. When I hired on in 2002, it was just kind of becoming to the forefront of, uh, you know, we had an extra training block on what is the CIT program and what do they do? And we had a, you know, a guest mm-hmm. adjunct instructor come in and talk about, you know, you'll see officers wearing this epaulet and this is, this is what their, their additional function is with, uh, with regards to basic patrol functions. So what, what is the CIT program? Well, it's actually a program that was actually uh, put together and developed uh, in Memphis with the Memphis Police Department and uh, the University of Memphis back in the 80s. And the reason that they uh, they started doing research into this is they decided to, uh, uh, you know, commingle their all their efforts and develop some type of a program to respond to crisis mental health emergencies. as on the law enforcement side, for the same reason that a lot of agencies are are looking at doing different changes with their with their mental health response today, and it was it was because they had a bad uh, incident that wound up going bad for them in the media, and uh, it, it just was a real nightmare for them. So they uh, decided to respond with developing oh, a different way to respond to these type of calls. And, you know, it's caught on over the years. It's nothing new. Uh, there's actually a, um, there's actually a, a site site on the internet. It's called CIT international and any, any officer or any agency that wanted to look into that program can, can access the, about all, the information that they need off that website. Uh, the agency that I work for went uh, to it back into the early 2000s for the very same reason. There, there had been a couple of uh, uh, really bad uh, uh, situations that didn't end well, and there was some public outcry and some bad media, and and uh, and so we, uh, the departments looked around uh, and uh, decided that that was a pretty good program to go with it, and that's how that's how their experience came into being. I, I was a director of my agency's program for about the last eight years. Uh, learned a lot. It was a real uh, rewarding assignment. And it's kind of unique because it's such a specialty in law enforcement. For those that uh, don't know, crisis intervention team typically handles mental health calls. That's the primary uh, directive, I guess you would say, or the, the right. primary function. Crisis, crisis mental health calls. Okay. But a little bit more, it's more than your just your average uh, somebody with a mental issue calling in that you're going to check their welfare. The CIT really is designed to work around those crisis situations where uh, family members or even consumers, mental health consumers themselves call in or because they can feel themselves cycling up. And so they need a little extra help. Yeah. Cycling up or getting going into crisis. And, and uh, when I, when I got on, it was kind of like, well, who are they going to call? You know? Right. If it's not right. something that's a dire medical emergency that doesn't warrant an ambulance, what, yeah. who do they call? And, uh, we had I, at that time, not very many officers that were trained to do that. It was kind of a, uh, a real niche or, or a real niche function. And my tenure in patrol was about 14 and a half years. And towards the end of it, it seemed like the bulk of the calls that we were responding to had a mental health component. Uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, robbery, homicide assaults, assaults to some degree, but, but your, your, your standard call in the day, there was, there were numerous times in the day that we would get Mm -hmm. calls on, on a consumer that was feeling off or off their medication or feeling suicidal Mm -hmm. or thought they might be, Etc. And it became a lot more commonplace, I would say, uh, just for the average patrol officer to be responding to that. And consequently, mm-hmm. there were a lot more CIT trained personnel 
based on the constraints of call volume and staffing levels, it was kind of a, I don't want to say a crapshoot, but it was, it, mm-hmm. there, the, the availability was less because the burden was more, if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Well, I, I think, uh, I, I know, I know it was this way in the jurisdiction that I came from, and I'm sure, uh, in, in most cities, larger cities, larger populations around the entire country. It's the same. It's an area of police response that's just grown and grown over the years. Uh, It's, you know, it's kind of one of those situations. I can remember when I first uh, got into law enforcement, we really didn't deal that much with, with mental health stuff because all that stuff got routed to county sheriff's departments. That was their role statutorily. And so we really didn't, you know, we responded to some calls and when we'd come across people in crisis, you would call the, the county sheriff's office and they would come and send a mental health deputy and they dealt with it. You went back among your, you know, on your business. But, um, you know, anymore, it, it's just it's become one of those social areas that has been such a failure for social services to handle. It's just defaulted to police, like it or not. Uh, we're in the business. And and so it kind of behooves us to look for ways to uh you know, respond to it the best we can and safest uh, ways for everybody involved until we're no longer in the business. Yeah. So I had a couple of like listener questions come up and, and one of them specifically was how long is the training to get an officer certified? What's the, uh, the training mandate? It, it, CIT international House guidelines, uh, that, uh, they suggest that agencies follow. Of course, they're not in a position to, to dictate, you know, that you, you have to do this, but there's, there's, there's general guidelines. And one of them is that they have a, uh, in-person, uh, minimum 40 hours of specialized training to deal with crisis response. It's a, it's, it's kind of a multi-jurisdictional approach where you, the training involves people for, that are stakeholders, uh, in the mental health system, treatment providers, hospitals, ambulance services. There's a, there's a component of everybody involved in, in those type of situations to uh, put on part of the training. Okay. They also have kind of a sample curriculum. Uh, you can, you know, fine tune it based on your jurisdiction and your agency's needs, but they also have sample cur- curriculums that you can look at. But the but they suggest that the training be a minimum of 40 hours in person. And th- and my experience with the program over the last several years is that's not an unreasonable expectation. It gets a little challenging for smaller agencies to devote somebody, you know, for a full week to training. Uh, but I, I think it's kind of one of those necessary things. I know our state, Oklahoma, we're mandated, what is it? It's eight hours of continuing education in mental health yearly, I believe. Yeah. It's either yes, four it's or eight. Actually, is it two? It's, it's actually two. Yeah. It's it's pretty low. I, I anticipate over the next couple of legislative sessions, that's probably going to change, you know, for Oklahoma. But uh, and, and I'm sure other states have different different mandates, but they probably all have one, no matter what the training hours are. Yeah. I was, I was kind of curious on the, the now international program, uh, like how flexible is their curriculum to tailor to an agency? Cause in a major it, metropolitan. It's, it's very sick. It, it's very, very flexible. I mean, there, there's going to be some things like policy and procedure, of course, that are just, that are going to be pretty, uh, uh, you know, specialized in whatever jurisdictions putting it on. But there are also some really broad training category guidelines, uh, like uh, uh, how to interact, you know, uh, with somebody that's in a crisis, how to bring them down off that high cycle. Uh, the the uh, training involves uh, actual scenario run scenarios with the with the with the students in the class that usually occurs over uh, like a two day period uh, a lot of hands on stuff a lot of learning uh, you know the, the class isn't designed to make anybody a mental health expert it's not designed to uh, put somebody to where you know in a position to where they could diagnose mental illness but it does teach them. Uh, behaviors that are associated with broad categories of different kinds of mental illness so they can recognize those cues and recognize that behavior maybe a little quicker, you know, than the average officer. And the number one thing about uh, the CIT program that I, that I think often gets overlooked is the CIT International suggests that, number one, uh, all agencies that establish a program do it on a voluntary basis. Don't force anybody to do it. 
and uh, to make them meet some qualifications. You don't want to put your brand new people, you know, with with, you know, not that much field experience into those kind of roles because they don't have the experience to really be able to appreciate, you know, what they're learning and, uh, you know, adding too much on their plate when it comes to something that's specialized. Uh, the other thing that I think that gets overlooked is that, uh, uh, you know, as far as the volunteer aspect is that, you know, make sure that you have people in your program that want to do it. I mean, let's face it, not every officer wants to handle uh, people with mental illness. They'd rather be, you know, doing whatever it is they like to do, whether that's writing tickets, you know, chasing burglars, whatever. Uh, and and so if you if you pick people that really don't have a desire to do it or you force people to do it, what kind of program are you going to have? So I think agencies really need to be uh, conscious of the fact that they're they're bringing people into that if they're if they're interested in starting a program, but really want to do it, have an interest in it. And, you, and, you know, one of the things that I was surprised at, you know, at my own agency was the officers had volunteered and the reasons behind why they wanted to do it. A lot of them had somebody in their own families that had a severe mental illness and they they were dealing with them anyway or were getting phone calls from other family members on how to deal with it. Or, or you know, there's some kind of motivator for them wanting to do it. And I think that's an important aspect of picking people for that, for those type of programs. I, I've never been through the the, the program, it was never something that I won't say that never interested me, but, uh, this may sound a bit crass, but I had, uh, I had about three members of my family, uh, none of which decide, you know, but the other side of the family <laughs> that, uh, although that could be eligible for debate, but, uh, <laughs> but on the, uh, on my mother's side of the family, I had three family members that were, two of them were very severe. And, uh, Mm -hmm. one of them was functional, I'll say with mental illness Mm -hmm. as a child growing up, having to see that and see how social services worked for some people and, and the, the hoops and hurdles that had to be accomplished to get somebody into a treatment or, or some type of long-term care. I really, it didn't appeal to me to do that at work when I had to see that Mm -hmm. at home. So, mm-hmm. but consequently the experiences that I had had seeing that I never had any real difficulty navigating those types of, uh, calls or those types of, uh, mm-hmm. interactions. It was kind of second nature, which sounds scary, but, uh, yeah, no, it, that makes sense. But, and the other, the other part was I worked in, uh, I worked in an area of town that had a juvenile, uh, mental health facility so I was constantly interacting with healthcare professionals and mental health court judges. And for me, I didn't have the, the real drive and desire to go explore that program more, I guess right. you could say. But anyway, this and, has been pretty nothing enlightening. Wrong. There's nothing wrong. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and you know, since you brought that up, I mean, how effective do you think you'd, you'd be if you were forced to do it? You know, exactly. I, I hear, you know, I hear stories about agencies that are, you know, it's like a, it's like a feather for an administrator or a chief to go, look, I'm, you know, I've got all of my officers are trained in CIT. Well, number one, if you decide that you're going to have a, a, a law enforcement mental health response program and you're not following the guidelines, which they recommend that you don't have any more than 20 to 25 percent of your patrol officers be trained. They, they want to, you know, you should, according to their own guidelines. So are you really running a CIT program if you're not going to follow the guidelines? Or I don't think you are. Checking a block. Know? Yeah. Right. That's that's what it boils down to. So it's a bunch of eyewash. It's, it's interesting that I've been on 19 years and I don't really understand how the program functions. The program functions. I understand that, you know, that the duties and responsibilities when you're in a patrol function to how to navigate those, those types of incidents, although probably not as effectively as some, as somebody that's been CIT qualified, but does mm-hmm. the CIT programs, do they require a continuing education? That was a question that came uh, up. They, they suggest it. They, they suggest that there's at least some annual training. I know a lot of, a lot of agencies in a lot of different States that, that, that uh, either the agency itself has a training or there's a consortium, like an association of, uh, or like a regional or a state uh, group that 
puts on annual training uh, on a regular basis for anybody in that region or that state. So there's all kinds of different ways that that can be done. Um, but yes, that, that's that's one of the recommendations. It's, it's one of those things where you're, you're going to use it a lot, but there's the need to do that if for no other reason changes in state law, changes in how those kind of calls and policy and procedure. There, there's just all kinds of reasons why it's probably a good thing to have some regular refresher training. I know, you know, even even in my own state here, uh, there's refresher training that's available for those CIT officers. So, and it's done in conjunction with the state mental health agency. So it's not, nobody has to go rogue with it or come up with their own program. Everybody's going to get the same kind of training. And the, and the better that you can standardize it, uh, the the better you're, it's going to be for everybody that's involved in it. It's pretty enlightening. And a, a lot of people, when they, they ask me because, Hey, I'm your friendly local neighborhood cop. And they ask me questions about a lot of these things. It, it's kind of like the concealed carry law stuff. I have kind of mm-hmm. a, a concealed carry.com has a, has an app for your phone that will tell you what your state is and what the laws are and what states recognize it. And I just being efficient, uh, still, Hey, download the app because I don't have all the answers. And a lot of people in the public default to the local friendly cop and and want to know these things. And, and this is something that's been going on in my own agency since the early two thousands. And I don't mm-hmm. know all the ins and outs of it because it's just, there's just so many subject matter areas that you can focus on or, or be an expert in that you, you sure. can't, you can't know it all. <laughs> so, you know, no, I, you know, in the, in the, you know, eight plus years I did it. I don't know it. I don't know everything there is to know about it. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways to accomplish the same goal. And I, I think one of the reasons why mental health response is such a problem for, for law enforcement agencies is, uh, number one, I'm just going to say it flat out. It's the only area of, uh, of uh, civil rights that we've actually gone backwards in. I mean, when this country was founded, you know, back in the in the 17, you know, later 17, mid 1700s, uh, you know, people that that had mental issues, they throw them in jail. And here we are. It's 2021. And for the most part, we're still throwing people in jail. And so we really haven't accomplished uh, a whole lot with that. And there's a lot of reasons why, uh, you know, say that, you know, we can spend two or three shows talking about the specifics of that. But uh, the bottom line is it's, it's again, like I said, it's one of those areas, law, law enforcement uh, really is designed to deal with criminal type situations. And there's nothing criminal about these situations until a crime's actually committed. You know, mental health is not a criminal act. Having a, having a mental uh, crisis or something like that in and of itself is, is really a, a civil kind of situation. So, uh, you know, over the last few decades, police departments all over this country have been forced to respond to these civil uh, type situations and, uh, you know, work outside in an area that we really weren't designed to to be involved in. And so I think that that in and of itself, it's created uh, a lot of un- a lot of uh, uncomfortableness for not only for law enforcement agencies, but for the public in general. And unfortunately, sometimes these things in bad and uh, uh, when they do. Uh, you know, it, it all ends up bad for the agency. You know, uh, people don't really, they don't really spend a lot of time thinking about that aspect of it, only that the police shot an individual, you know, uh, some poor person that had a, had a mental episode, you know, that's, that's what yeah. they, that's what they absorb, you know? Yeah. And that's for me, that was kind of uh, in my last patrol district. That was where I really gained an understanding of this, which I just called it experience. And we somehow mm-hmm. have labeled this de-escalation, right? I, I just, right. you know, the older I got, the less apt I was to, to get into a physical confrontation and the more time I would spend <laughs> talking my way through it. Yeah. And, uh, that's something I don't, I don't think you can really train a 22 year old on. You know, that, that's something that, and I suffered from it. And I think a lot of other people do that. Well, we got to get to the next thing. We got to go this, we got to sort this out and get to the next thing. And it's, it's hard to, 
get people to pump the brakes sometimes, you know, and, and I think that was one of the things that I saw interacting with CIT officers was, okay, well now I'm on a CIT call. I don't care about what else is going on. This is my primary responsibility now. And Mm -hmm. for the average patrol officer, me, that was something that I had to learn through, you know, years of dealing with people that did not want to be dealt with, so to speak, or trying to uh, take a, a rational police officer and realize that somebody is in, in an absolutely irrational state. And how do you bring yeah. them back to some semblance of rationality to resolve the situation peacefully? So it's an what, art. It's an it's art an that art you form. learn how to do with specific education. Uh, you know, that that's the bottom line with it. They're, those are definitely not the kind of calls that you can rush. And, and, you know, I, I think a lot of administrators lose sight of the fact that, you know, when they're, when they're chasing numbers and, and, you know, bean counting and things of that, you know, how much time are officers spending on calls and, you know, what's your activity looking like? These aren't, you know, these are just not the type of calls that it conflicts when you do that. Uh, you know, you're, you know, on one hand, you're telling officers to deescalate and you're putting on this training, you know, and, and for this cause du jour, because officers have been deescalating since, you know, we've had police officers. Right. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, you, you've got, you know, hey, your activity's down. You're not answering X amount of calls a shift. You know, so you can't have it both ways. So I think some it's a balancing act there that needs to be examined too. If you're going to rush mental health calls, you're asking for a problem. I think. Yeah, I agree uh, completely. Experience tells me that. You know. Yeah, I'll give an example. I had a uh, a lady that was related to the family of a very famous northeast side uh, barbecue joint, which I frequented when I was. <laughs> in patrol who would go downtown shoe shopping to the, I don't know, Florsheim or somewhere, which hadn't been in existence since the seventies. And she would want to get on the bus and go there and buy shoes. And, and they would call, she's wandered off, et cetera. And there was one particular day I spent an hour and a half just trying to tell this 83 year old woman, Hey, look, I'll take you to buy shoes. Just, just come along and we'll, and, and the call ultimately resolved in, Hey, we're here. You've already been to the shoe store and we're back home now. Oh, okay. Thank you officer. And, but if you take somebody and I, I hate to categorize people by age, but if you take a 22 year old kid that is ready to go, you know, put out fires and save the world that doesn't maybe take that extra bit of time to build a rapport, et cetera. And and do all the things that as a veteran officer, you go, well, this is going to be a long afternoon, but if I can bring this to a resolution with a, without any paperwork, that's detrimental to me or the person I'm dealing with and B bring this to a resolution for the family, maybe refer them to services and who cares how long it takes. Let's, let's go through this. And right. I, I I'm impressed that the program out of Memphis has the whole voluntary background associated with it. And one of the things that has come up recently was, well, why aren't every, why doesn't every officer receive this as a 40 hour block of training in their basic Academy training that uh, to me, I, I look at things like that and go, well, you know, cities have so much budget. We have so many instructors. We, that's a tax on manpower, on staffing, on all these things. And if you don't have the interest in doing that, you're not going to do it well. And you can ask any one of my old bosses when I worked an accident, it might as well have been done in crayon because that wasn't my jam. That wasn't what right, I excelled right. at. But, right, exactly. But fortunately we have people that can go out and do drone reconstruction of a, an accident scene, you know, and that's, that's, that was never my strong suit, but, uh, right. So I can kind of, I can kind of see both sides of that. Well, but, the other reason why that's not a good idea, and I and I understand, and 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 basically, my my personal opinion on it, uh, Brian, is that's done for eyewash because that's all, you know, that's the only thing that you could say that's positive about that. When you've got when you've got a kid in the academy, you're already they're already drinking from a fire hose, right? And then and then you know they're they're in no position to receive specialized training on something as as a uh, 
a hot button issue is mental health response for police when you're when you're in an academy setting. It's that, that's an unrealistic expectation. And ultimately, I think that you're setting those recruits up to fail because it's just unreasonable to expect them to perform at that level at that stage of their career. I was blessed or cursed, I guess, however you look at it with, you know, my Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners were a little more colorful than the average bears because, you know, having an aunt and uncle and a father that were all in police work. So when I got into police work, a lot of the things that my fellow recruits had their conscience shocked by, well, yeah, that was just Thanksgiving dinner two years ago. We've are, I've, I've, right. I've already had this mental picture of what this looks and sounds like. It, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't, uh, it wasn't off putting, uh, but a lot of my peers at that time, you know, I, I, the first shooting scene we went on, it was, you know, everybody was wide eyed and, oh my gosh, I can't believe this has happened to another human being mm-hmm. where I was like, yeah, this is Friday. <laughs> like, right. how do we, how do we resolve this situation? So I, I can completely understand how that would be, you know, making it a, a mandated program would could maybe gloss over some of the, uh, experiential or experience based, uh, sure. Firsthand knowledge. You're, you're right. And, and, you know, there's another aspect of that too. Uh, and, and it, I don't, I'm not bringing it up to be detrimental. It's just, it's generational there. There's a, uh, you know, it was, it's, it's a lot easier for people from my generation to be able to learn those concepts of communication because we didn't have all the technology. Now we're dealing with generations, a couple of generations of kids that most of their interaction is done in the digital world. Well, you can't deal with somebody in mental crisis if you've got great digital skills, but you don't have, you know, interpersonal communication skills. So that's another aspect of that, that uh, I know probably every agency in the country is, is, uh, has experienced to some level or another with their recruits. And that's why a lot of the training is, is gone technologically based, but you, in our line of work, I don't think in our lifetimes, we're going to see uh, it reach the point of where we can, you know, disengage to the, you know, any major degree on the interpersonal communication because so much of what the work we do is one-on-one. And so you've got to develop those skills, which is another reason why you wouldn't want to, uh, you know, put a new recruit in the academy through that type of training. What do, what do you accomplish? And, you know, it's looking good, but what yeah. do you really accomplish? It? Yeah. My, my, my father, after I'd been on about two years, he, he, we were sitting at dinner and he said, you know, I wish I could put 15 year policeman me into your head so that I know you would be okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I had about three, four years on at that time. And I'm like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about, old man, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I completely, now that that, that has kind of turned and I've stepped through that threshold that nobody tells you about where you're the oldest guy in the room sometimes. Yeah. Um, I completely understand that concept. And there's some, some of the things that, that I've struggled with on the instructor side is how do I incorporate technology into training an individual to try to bridge some communication barrier? So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think that's a, that's an excellent point as well. I had, uh, had one other of my listeners that said, how does CIT integrate with emergency medical? And I didn't want to answer it at the time because I only have the firsthand street knowledge of what that looks like, but. What's your take on one that? of the ways? One of the ways they integrate is that their, you know, ambulance services and and med rides and things like that should actually be part of the curriculum. Part of you know the curriculum is based on everybody learning a little bit about what everybody else does. You learn about you, what your community providers, your outpatient services, what their capabilities are, what their capabilities aren't. Uh, your your inpatient facilities, your uh, fire, you know first response, the ambulance, uh, everybody is involved in this, even your state mental health agencies. Uh, and so everybody learns and gets a little bit of background, what everybody's, uh, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. You know, and one of the surprising things is there's a lot of people that are in the mental health uh, treatment uh, realm that 
have unrealistic expectations about what law enforcement can do and what they can't do. And so incorporating all of that into training and, and dedicating blocks and time and training curriculum for these people to come in and do panels and things like that, it, it really kind of it puts everybody on a on a on a better understanding and a more level playing field. So you're not uh, chasing your tail, wondering why uh, you know um, you know a certain outpatient treatment facility can't do this or can't do that. Well, you don't have the capabilities. Why don't you have the capability? Because you know, and let them explain it. And it just it just it it keeps people from wasting time and you know going to point A and point B only to find out that they're not going to be able to do anything for them and they wind up going to the hospital anyway. So that's one of the, that's one of the big benefits about it. Like I said, I mean, everybody has sometimes expectations about the other part of that uh, equation that they don't know that they can do or they can't do. So that kind of helps with that. Uh, And the, the, uh, the ambulance uh, segment of it's the same way. I mean, one of the things about it is when you're dealing with somebody that's in a crisis that uh, is, is you know, just not going to be cooperative, but the law says they're going to have to go for an involuntary evaluation, uh, you know, putting a, getting them in a police car is just not going to be an option. Uh, they're, and it's going to be much better uh, to put them strapped on a gurney and take them, you know, in that fashion. It's just safer for everybody. Uh, so those are the kind of things where that kind of interaction really kind of helps. And it lets the ambulance people know why we're calling them uh, and we're learning what their expectations are too. Uh, I know that uh, I've, I've talked to officers that didn't really understand why like a, a, uh, a crisis center or an ambulance can't give somebody a shot to knock them out or calm them down. And, you know, the ins and outs of that, everybody has, you know, their own programs and the rules that they have to operate under. Uh, you know, a lot of crisis centers uh, that take people have to take them on a voluntary basis. And the reason that they they can't uh, medicate them with really strong medication is because they don't have advanced life support there. So which means in order to get those kind of, of uh, uh, medications, you have to be at a hospital, uh, you know, things like that. It just those nuances, you know, and and why things have to happen the way that they have to happen. That's, that's an area that for me it, in the years that I functioned in a, like a, a first line patrol, I always felt like there should be some type of coalition or some type of, of, of governing body or just a group, a think tank, so to speak between hospitals, state mental health, ambulance service, fire, police, uh, what are all of those to get everybody on the same page? And mm-hmm. I have not seen any city that has done that effectively ever. Uh, no, to where- the reason why you there, there's a reasons why you don't see that. Uh, and and this is this is solely my opinion. Yeah. But a lot of these play it's, it it all it all boils down to money. And if there was money to be made in mental health treatment and response, uh, you, the services would be unbelievable. But there's no money in it. Uh, and, and the money that is in it makes these these different entities all in competition for those dollars. So they really are disincentivized to work together because they're competing for the same pot of money. And so a lot of the organization and a lot of the the team, you know, the, the team building that goes on has to be done by the law enforcement agency that's actually doing the, the first response because they're the agency that really has to work with all these people. Uh, independently where they don't have to work amongst themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's that's, challenging. That's enlightening as well, because I I always felt like, okay, the fire department has their response protocol that the emergency medical ambulance service has their response protocol. And, and then the police has their, their policy and their response protocol and the hospitals may be completely in left you know, off in left field about how they handle this particular patient mm-hmm. uh, versus an inpatient medical facility or an outpatient medical facility or, uh, and, and it gets even too often. F- yeah, go ahead. Too often, too often hospitals, uh, I, I, what, you know, end up in what I term the facility of default. 
because if all else fails, take them to the emergency room. And, you know, they're, like I said, I mean, they, some hospitals are, 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 you know, taking a disproportionate share of those people, depending on where in a city they might be located. If you, if you got an inner city hospital, you can about bet you they're, they're carrying a majority of that burden in that particular city, uh, as opposed to an outlying one on the outskirts, you know? So, uh, but like I said, I mean, hospitals for the most part have, have, have found themselves in a position of be in the facility of default. Yeah. And, uh, the other, uh, that's that's really enlightening, the pot of money. And a lot of times we don't know where that comes from because as a first responder, you don't worry about whose budget, what comes out of. And uh, right. I think the, you know, the older you get, you start to understand, you know, some, having to do a hundred plus mile transport as a policeman with two police officers, man hours, fuel, um, mm-hmm it starts to be really taxing and for a large agency, they can accommodate it for some of the rural agencies that could be an officer's entire shift. And there might be two officers for the city. In Oklahoma, in Oklahoma, I anticipate that changing this legislative session. There's actually some uh, bill that, that has seemed to picked up some steam uh, to make that responsibility uh, a state mental health responsibility again, uh, and so they'll wind up doing it through private contractors or private ambulance services or whatever, but taking that burden off of law enforcement because it's killing the small agencies, the, the five man, uh, 10 man agencies that, you know, has to devote an officer or even two, if you're going to do it safe, uh, you know, to spend a whole uh, tour uh, driving across the state to an empty mental health bed. It's just not working. And it's finally reach the tipping point. And so I anticipate changes being made really soon on that. Well, here's uh, another thing that, that this wasn't audience. This came from me. I hear a lot about the defund movement, right? And mm-hmm. I understand like there are certain factions out there that would just like to see the police go away completely. And then there are people that are shrouded in that defund movement that go, we should take funding away from police and divert it to mental health services and mm-hmm. the ones that I've heard on that regard, a lot of the officers that I've talked to are like, if you want to take this program or that program that we pay for away and you want to divert that to a med ride service, go ahead because mm-hmm. we're kind of at a tipping point in, well, in history and with law enforcement budgets and all these other things that they go, if that means that I can go back my partner up and I don't have to worry about this lower priority mental health call and somebody else can, can respond to that, give it to them. What's your, what's your kind of take on that? And I know you brought up the legislative session because I can remember 10 years ago, I, I won't mention how I was involved in it, but uh, there was some talk about bills about, Hey, maybe we could divert some of this funding to starting a med ride service so that these mental health consumers mm-hmm. don't have to get stuffed in the back of a Ford Taurus and driven mm-hmm. 150 miles or, or whatever to the nearest open yeah. bed, because mm-hmm. I'm of uh, sound mind and body. And I don't want to get in the back of a police car in handcuffs and ride a hundred miles anywhere. So, or drive a kid, drive an eight year old kid, you know, yeah. in handcuffs in the back of one. Yeah, exactly. I, I understand. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I'm with you. I think that's definitely counterproductive. Uh, I can tell you that there's been in Oklahoma, uh, and I don't know how many of your, your, your uh, listeners and viewers are in the state of Oklahoma, but in Oklahoma, there's actually an avenue to do that that was passed several years ago. Unfortunately, they didn't fund it. And the, the only budget that state mental health has for that kind of service is a, is a mileage reimbursement of 52 cents a mile. We are, you, you, there's no company going to take on that burden that they can't make it. It's just economically impossible for them to do that job for 52 cents a mile. So it never really got off the ground, even though there's an avenue to do it. Uh, this, this newest bill uh, is actually dedicating a state, you know, part of the state budget on a regular basis, you know, to this effort. So I anticipate it's going to be a lot easier to find people that, that are going to want to do it, private private companies that are going to want to take that on. And I'm sure they'll have to meet a certain guidelines, uh, training guidelines, and 
you know, first aid and, you know, th those kind of things. Uh, it, it won't be uh, something that somebody's going to have to do with the extra van that they've got in the driveway. There'll, there'll definitely be some requirements and insurance guidelines and stuff, but at least uh, uh, hopefully it'll be funded well enough to entice some private businesses to want to get into that. And I think uh, the whole defund movement has been sorely misguided and they should call it the restructuring or the re-envisionment of, of future policing to where police officers do what they're historically trained to do, which is intervene in uh, criminal activity and not so much intervene in medical, the, the, the medical yeah. type crisis, but, but there's, that's a double-edged sword as well. Yeah, it is. It is. And individuals that I personally uh, know about that are big on the, on the defunding the police thing. Uh, and, and I, there's a lot of them. I only know the ones that you, you see the most of, they're, they're individuals that have no experience on either side of the uh, work that they're wanting to change. They, they have no understanding of it whatsoever. Uh, I can tell you that the community treatment providers in the hospitals are not going to be big supporters of that because they know how dangerous it is and they know that they're not equipped to respond. So, the, you know, they're not going to be, no matter how much money is involved, there's not going to be that many takers on sending social workers to those kind of calls. It's unrealistic. I think it's a lot of, uh, again, it's, it's uh, their version of eyewash and it's a lot of nonsense. I, I don't, I don't think that's realistic at all. In a perfect patrolman's world, it would be, I respond, make it safe. And then an agency comes and does mm -hmm. the rest. That's more realistic to see something like that, to have a, have more of a, what I'd call a, a, a hot turnover, you right. know, to a social service agency from an initial response. Like, you know, that, that, that's something that's workable, but to just divert those kind of calls to a social service agency, which is a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the noise you're hearing, that's what it is. I, I just, I think that's not very realistic. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, if those, how oh, those factions that are out there talking defund, et cetera, et cetera, I can see kind of a workable middle ground, but I don't see any of the factions talking workable middle ground. <laughs> so, right, right. Well, I think, I, I think we've been controversial enough. Any final thoughts? <laughs> I, <laughs> I give, uh, I give every guest on the show a final thought block of, yeah. you know, it, in a, like I just gave mine in a perfect world, we yeah. would, uh, you know, the policeman would respond and go, this person's in mental crisis. Let's render that situation safe. And then let's bring in a social service person that is specialized in helping them for whatever their crisis may be. Uh, that would be my optimum unicorns and fairies like situation. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that someday we can get there, but I don't know that I will see it in my tenure in law enforcement. But. Well, I definitely didn't, but, and I hope you do, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, but I think it would be good if, if there was at least a start of some discussion to move in that direction, because I think that is a workable solution to this. I, I don't think it's realistic to expect the police are going to get out of the mental health response business. I don't see that happening at all. And I also, but on the other hand, I don't, I don't see it becoming a, res a responsibility of, um, only social service agencies either. So there's going to have to be some, uh, you know, meet in the middle on it. And, and I hope discussions like this, will, if they do nothing else, at least start those kind of wheels spinning in people's heads and at least have those discussions about it. You know, mental health, uh, it's kind of one of those areas, even in, even in the law enforcement world, even though we're better about it because it's a part of our, our work lives, more than it is the average citizen, but it's just one of those areas people, it makes them uncomfortable to talk about. So it's just easier not to, not to have to, you know, talk about those kind of things. But, you know, uh, I think we're doing not only mental health consumers, we're doing ourselves a disservice uh, by not, uh, you know, having those kind of discussions for sure. Perfect. Well, I appreciate you coming on the, off-duty, on-duty podcast and enlightening me, 
who uh, <laughs> has been in law enforcement 19 years about exactly what is this hot button new catchphrase that uh, the media and everybody is focused on, which is CIT, Crisis Intervention mm-hmm. Team. So I appreciate your time, and I'm going to roll us out. Thanks, Jeff, for being on the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast. Episode 27, the CIT, what is it? What is it not? Again, thanks to Jeff for uh, taking time out of his day to come and enlighten us on uh, the topic of what is CIT? You hear it in the media, you see it online, what is it? So... Uh, reminder, check out our sponsors for this episode, Range Tech Bluetooth Shot Timers, CCW Safe, EDC Belt Company, and again, please check out the Guardian Nation, Guardian Conference 2021, September. Jump in now for the early bird specials. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This is the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast. Thanks again to all the listeners. If you have some uh, comments, get on the website, offdutyonduty.com. If you liked what you heard on the episode or you didn't like it, leave us a comment. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.